Christ's name. Amen. As you guys know, my kids do, in fact, get it from somewhere. When I was young, I too longed to be a ninja. Hollywood filled my imagination with these childhood fantasies that through a 60-second training montage to the right music, I too, a scrawny eight-year-old, could take down a grown man six times my own body weight with a punch. I mean, I watched Karate Kid. I watched Karate Kid 2, Karate Kid 3. I think there was a fourth one, Surf Ninjas, Three Little Ninjas, Three Little Ninjas Knuckle Up, and those are the ones I remember as an adult. Like, at this point, I'm practically an expert. And then I talked to my friends whose parents signed them up for the martial arts, and they told me that instead of going to some dojo in, you know, Japan or Southeastern Asia, they went to a strip mall, and they learned from a guy named Chuck. And they, learning martial arts was learning to stand, and then learning to breathe, and then learning to punch and to do a kata. And I said, where do you get the swords? And they didn't get swords yet. And this sounded like just not so much fun. It was a huge disappointment. I ended up not pursuing martial arts. And the reason for bringing up this very silly story beyond just to laugh is that I feel like for many people, when they come to the scriptures, they come to it like I did to martial arts. That you, you may have had the conversation with someone who's been walking with Jesus a long time and they talk to you about how valuable God's word is. You know, they'll say things like, this word is life, or they'll, they'll swear on the Bible, or they'll talk about this deep emotional experience that they had with God over God's word. And if you're new to this, maybe you were brave enough to give it a shot. And if you're like most people, when you give a book a shot, you start at the beginning. All's well, the book of Genesis. Okay, it's ancient literature, but so far so good. And you read the stories of the creator God who made heaven and earth and entrusted it to humankind and how we rebelled against them and everything fell apart and how God's rescue plan for all creation was going to come through the family line of Abraham. And so then you read the stories, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Egypt, so far so good. And congratulations, you finished the book of Genesis. All right, we turn the page. Exodus begins. So far, so good. The people of Israel, they're in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and God tells a man named Moses, go confront Pharaoh and say, this is what the I am who I am says. Let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and God says, well, I can deal with that. So 10 plagues came on Egypt. The people of Israel get to leave. God delivers them through the Red Sea and this miraculous crossing, and the waters come back on the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. They fear Yahweh and they believe in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Now into the wilderness, all right? Again, so far so good. These people, they've been saved. You think they'd be grateful longer? They're not. Three days, the grumbling starts, and it all culminates at Mount Sinai in the wilderness when, when full stop, the entire story shifts major gears, and we begin reeling Uh, reading strange rules about what happens if your ox gores someone else's ox. And then there's these ancient tabernacle blueprints. And if you're perseverant as a reader, you make it to Leviticus. And what in the world do you do with the fatty lobe of a liver and bodily discharges and other fun stuff? 
And then you get into numbers. I mean, numbers. Who doesn't love a good census? <laughs> and, uh, and this passage of Scripture is where good, well-meaning Bible reading plans go to die um, because we, we don't know what to do with it. Now, I, I want to acknowledge that. And yet I also want to contrast that with what the psalmist will later say when he says, God, the, the Torah, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. God, I'd rather have this than have hundreds of thousand dollars in the bank. What's going on? Is he reading the same scriptures that I'm reading? And my goal as we move through these uh, first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, is to help you to see that this is scripture, that this is valuable, that this is worthwhile, and also to give you a framework for how, how to think about that weird ox-goring rule and laws. Where do they fit? And one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping to show you is that um, God's amazing, and he's just, and he's creative, and he orders the universe, but, um, and he is, he is a lawgiver. Clearly, he does give laws, and they are good laws, but rules, rules are more the concession than the plan. So you'll see a pattern as we move through the, the story. The people of Israel will fail, and God will give them rules, and they're going to fail again. And so God will give them more rules, and they're going to fail again, and God will give them more rules. Until we get to the end of the Pentateuch, and Moses, the lawgiver himself, is reflecting on the fact of this whole covenant thing at Sinai, as important as it is, is a failure because the people's heart isn't right. And Moses will look forward to a day when God will put a new covenant in place where people's hearts will change. All right, so what we are encountering here in Exodus 19 is pivotal, it's important, but something happens here in a small instance that will happen in larger instances later, where we will see how God accommodates himself to broken humans who fear him. And now, for the sake of clarity, let me just tell you where I'm going um, the people of Israel, they come to Mount Sinai, and God tells them, avoid the mountain, and then on the third day when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, you are to, I think, you are to come up on the mountain and encounter and meet with God. This is an interpretive move. English translations are divided here. Some will say you are to come up to the mountain because they read this story as if Israel did the right thing, and others say you are to come up on the mountain. And even in English, it's like two small letters that totally change the way we read the story because unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, scripture comes to us like, like verbal puzzle boxes. They're not always clear. They're not always simple. In fact, they're not supposed to. They're way more interesting. They're designed to make us wrestle with them and go, what, what in the world are we going to do? So I think they're supposed to go up on the mountain. I think they're supposed to encounter God. I don't think the Ten Commandments and the Covenant Code to follow, chapters 21 through 23, was God's first plan, but rather God is conceding to the people's desire for some safe distance between them and a terrifying God. So, we're covering six chapters. My thumbs, chapters 19 and 24, are the stories, all right, and the middle four are laws. So we're going to focus on the narrative. 
Uh, we're going to address a bit of the loss, and hopefully we'll see how we are invited into access with the one true God, and maybe we will choose a little bit differently than the Israelites did. Of course, it's a lot less scary for us. So if you want to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, it says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God. And Yahweh called to him from the mountain, and he said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I love that. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. And then through the wilderness, God says, it's like I carried you on the wings of eagles. Why? So that we could be together. I have brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, if you listen to my voice, in Hebrew, there's not a word for obey. It's the word listen, listen up. So if you obey me and you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. All right, this is God's plan A. If you listen to me and you keep this covenant, you will be special. Of all the nations in the world, you, you're my people. You're my special possession. And I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Priests are go-betweens. They go between God and the people and the people and God. So the whole nation of Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests to go between God and the nations and vice versa. And you're going to be a holy nation. All right. Now the word holy in English t- makes us think of Swiss cheese and skinny jeans, and it's neither, neither of those. So um, the word holy, it means to be set apart. It's just not for everyday use. Okay. Some of you still have holy shoes, your dress shoes, special occasions only. Some of your grandmothers, they have holy dishes, special occasions only, the china. We have holy places. We don't call it that here in America. Um, Our national parks are holy. They are too beautiful to put a factory there. We set them apart. The NICU at our local hospital is a holy place. Not anyone can just waltz in there. You need to be the right person, and you need to be cleansed in the right way. Or nuclear reactors are holy places. I wouldn't advise going in there anytime you darn well choose. Um, It's dangerous. It's also life-giving, and it provides power for for a ton of homes. It's generating life and blessing, but it, be careful, all right? Those are holy places, holy things. These are different aspects, but it just means not every day. You, the people of Israel, you are to be set apart as something special, unique, like this is what we as Americans were like, yeah, yeah, we all want to be special, right? This is a good thing. This is what God is inviting all the people into. And so Moses went back down. He summoned the elders of the people and he set before them all the words that Yahweh had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything Yahweh has said. And so Moses brought their answer back to Yahweh. Is this what you want? Do you want to keep my covenant and listen to my voice? And all the people are like, yeah, that sounds great. So Yahweh said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and they will always put their trust in you. All right? 
God says, Moses, I have this plan. All the people are going to watch the two of us have a conversation. So they'll always believe in you. And Moses told Yahweh what the people had said. They're in. We're ready. As Yahweh said to Moses, he says, go to the people and consecrate them. Make them holy. Set them apart. Today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. God is going to set up shop on planet Earth at a specific zip code, Mount Sinai. Now put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they, here's that textual thing, may they come up to the mountain, may they approach the mountain, or they may come up on the mountain. And English translations are divided. So the NIV and the English Standard Version, they say come up to the mountain or approach the mountain. The New Living Translation says come up on the mountain. And this is not just a, a Christian thing, Jewish translations. Some of them say come up on and otherwise. And I think they're supposed to go up on the mountain. This is like, you know, the, the, the rope at the gate at Disneyland. If you break in here, we're going to kick you out. If you wait for the park to open, then you get to go inside. Only in God's case, if you touch this mountain before it's time, you're dead. And anything that touches the mountain will be shot from a distance. It's somehow contaminated with something and we can't even get close. Once the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then you can come up. Now, after Moses had gone down to the mountain to the people, he consecrated them. They washed their clothes and he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. It's not quite what they thought they were signing up for. The, the words used, this mountain is, is like freaking out <laughs> in the display of nature. There's loud thunder, and there's lightning, and ominous, dark, foreboding clouds over the top of this mountain, and then from the midst of this cacophony, you hear the sound of a trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp, Moses included, is a little bit freaked out right now. But that was the signal. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Kind of a, yep, nope kind of situation. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. <laughs> the people were, they were quaking in camp. Now the entire mountain in front of them is shaking at the presence of God. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder, literally the, the sound was walking closer, that's your signal, and louder, <clears throat> 
Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And Yahweh descended to the top of Mount Sinai. And, and the people of Israel just stood, got up on a date. And so he called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to him, Go down and warn the people so they don't force their way through to see Yahweh, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach Yahweh must consecrate themselves, or Yahweh will break out against them. So, whether I'm interpreting this right or not, something significant has happened because we've gone from having a kingdom of priests to a kingdom with priests. And it was that transition that first clued me in and I learned from other people about like how to look at what is going on here. But I think the people just stood, got up on a date. And Moses said to Yahweh, oh, the people, they can't come up Mount Sinai. You yourself warned us, set limits around the mountains and, and set it apart as holy. It's a good excuse, Moses, but that's not what God said. God says, set limits around the mountains and set the people apart as holy, not the mountain. And Yahweh replied, he says, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests, there they are again, and the people, they must not force their way through to come up to Yahweh or he will break out against them. They can't come up anymore. Access is now denied. Something has shifted in the relationship. And so Moses went down to the people and he told them, and God spoke all these words. And we get the Ten Commandments, which are good, which are holy, which are true and just, and the foundation for all the laws that are going to come from here on out, because they're based in the character and the work of God. They're super, super important. But I, I would propose, based on my reading, that they were not God's plan A. That rather, like God had a relationship with Abraham, where he called Abraham to listen to his voice and to obey him, and Abraham obeyed. Uh, the people had a, access to a more direct relationship with God than they end up getting. And they go from being a kingdom of priests to a kingdom with priests. Rules are, are safer. So I'll go ahead and read the Ten Commandments, and then there's a short little flashback, uh, and then we'll jump to chapter 24. God spoke all these words. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. I saved you. I rescued you. You're mine. Don't let anything come between us. Side note, the people of Israel, they are not saved by obeying these rules. They were already saved from slavery in Egypt. And now they're being given these, these rules. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, Yahweh, your God, I am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sin for the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Sobering stuff. For those who despise me, like the consequences will rain down to their grandkids and their great-grandkids. However, verse six, but, but I show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So if you, if you hate me, the consequences in your life will go to your great grandkids. But if you love me, it's going to go to the 999th, sorry, I'm one short, 1,000th generation for those who love me and keep my commandments. 
What kind of people would you like to be? Don't make an image. Genesis 1 says, because you are the image of God. And you shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Or some of your Bibles will read, who take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. As a kid growing up, I was, I was told that means you never, ever, ever, ever say, oh my God, because God will not hold you guiltless for taking his name in vain. It means don't, don't swear with God's name. And there's, there's a place for that, but I, I think God is talking about something actually a lot more serious than, than like an, oh my God. When I married my wife, she took my name. Legally, it's, it's on her driver's license. She now carries my name with her wherever she goes, and she represents me. I think that's, that's the notion. Do not, do not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. You now represent God. Don't, in his name, go and work evil and tell people God told you to do it. Don't, in his name, misrepresent him. Don't, don't put on the uniform and then do whatever you want to do. You are separate to me. And I will not hold you guiltless if you take my name and then you go and misuse it. No imposters here. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Stop it, all of you, for one day a week. Stop it. Because in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. You gotta quit the hustle. It is not good for you to work all the time. Even God takes a break. So trust him and take a break. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land Yahweh your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Everything else is kind of like external and this is something in your heart. Don't covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Later on, these are referred to as the 10 words. We commonly call them the 10 commandments and they form the, the basis now of God's relationship with his people. But Abraham was called a friend of God and he didn't receive any 10 commandments. I would say, I think this is a concession and now we're gonna flash back now, when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. And they said to Moses, uh, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. This guy is a little bit intense for us, actually a lot of it. If he continues talking to us, we're going to die. I know we just didn't, but we're going to die. Moses, you go talk to him. And then you come and talk to us and we'll listen to you. Don't let God speak with us. And then Moses said to the people, he says, don't be afraid. God has come to test you. This is a test. He says, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Don't be afraid. Fear God. 
Don't be afraid because a proper fear of God is supposed to lead you to not sin. It's not supposed to keep you away from God's presence. Fear God in the right way. But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And then God reiterates, you've seen it for yourselves. I've spoken with you, with you from heaven. Don't make any gods or likenesses alongside me. And then a description of an earthen altar. And we're going to come to the last verse. What's going on here? There's, there's a pattern here to see. This is a test. And it has echoes of Adam and Eve and of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Because the only two places in the scriptures where a sound is said to walk, according to a commentator that I read, because I don't know Hebrew, but on his authority, he says the only two places that we actually have that description of a sound walking is in Genesis chapter 3, when you hear the sound of the Lord God moving in the wind of the day. And Adam and Eve, they are afraid, and they try to cover their nakedness, and God ends up having to cover their nakedness. So here too, the people of Israel hear the sound of the trumpet walking closer and closer. It's getting louder and louder and they are afraid and they set themselves back at a distance. And the last verse of chapter 20 says, God says, don't go up on my, to my altar on steps lest your nakedness be exposed. There's a test here and they are retreating from the presence of God because they think it will destroy them. Compared to Abraham, who when God tested Abraham, he says, Abraham, go up to a mountain and there offer your son as a sacrifice. Go up to a mountain that looks like it's going to bring death to you and everything that you love most dearly in life. And Abraham sees the mountain from afar and Abraham fears God. And because he fears God, he doesn't retreat, but he actually goes up in obedience to find that there on top of the mountain, God's grace meets him and Isaac is saved. And God says, because you feared God and you didn't withhold Isaac, I will bless you. And so Abraham obeys. And it's interesting. It's interesting because none of the laws of the Mosaic covenant given at Sinai were given to Abraham, at least in the narrative. And yet, interestingly enough, if you flip back to Genesis chapter 26, verse 5, God is talking to Abraham's son, Isaac, later on in life. God makes Isaac a promise to bless him, to keep covenant with him. I will make your descendants, verse 4, as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed me, he did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. That God looks at Abraham and says, he did everything I commanded and he kept my decrees and my instructions. That's like Sinai language. Abraham kept it all without having it all. And how did he do it? Well, because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He feared God and he didn't stay away. He feared God in obedience. The people right now, they're drawing back. And so God, he gives them rules. So we have three chapters of awesome rules. We're going to come and reflect on those, but let's go to chapter 24 right now. <clears throat> so three chapters of discourse, the narrative picks up in 24. And then Yahweh said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron 
Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's two oldest boys, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And you are to worship at a distance. Just like you held yourself back at a distance, now you're to worship at a distance. And Moses alone is to approach Yahweh. The others must not come near. And the people may not come up with them. So when Moses went and told the people all Yahweh's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything Yahweh has said, we will do. It's a very similar clause to back in chapter 19. When Yahweh says, go tell him if you obey my voice and you keep my covenant, I'm going to do something special for you. Moses summoned the people and he said, set before them all the words of Yahweh. And they said, that sounds great. Here, he sets before them all the words and all the laws. And they say, that sounds great. So Moses wrote down everything Yahweh had said. And he got up early the next morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to Yahweh. Like there's no, there's no priesthood yet, and just young Israelite men are able to perform a priestly function. That'll change here very, very soon. And Moses took half the blood and he put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant that he just wrote, and he read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything Yahweh has said. We will listen. We will obey. We'll see. We'll see. They thought they could do it the first time. And uh, thunder, lightning, and, and the appearance of cloud and fire on a mountain was, was a little bit too scary. But now we got the laws. We're good. We will obey. So Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, they went up the mountain, at least partway, from a, from a distance. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was, was something, it was like a pavement made of, of lapis lazuli or sapphire, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. It doesn't seem that there's any indication that the cloud went away. It's still this ominous looking mountain, but they go up and they behold God and they don't die. In fact, they experience the hospitality of God in his presence. And Yahweh said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I've written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide. And Moses went up the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, hey, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you. Anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. I mean, after all, if Aaron is on the job, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> you guys have read the story before. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of Yahweh settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, Yahweh called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of Yahweh looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. It literally looked like there's a fire eating the top of the mountain, and Moses is up there. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. And the Lord blessed the reading of his word. Moses, Moses is awesome. He's really, really awesome in this story. He's like, he's like a new Adam. Did you catch that? 
Just as Adam and Eve, they were on a mountain with God because all the rivers ran downhill out of Eden. And Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It was a place on planet Earth where humanity and God dwelt together. And after they were kicked out, God put a flaming sword and cherubim to guard the way. There's this flame barrier to keep you from getting back in. Well, once again, we have a location on planet Earth where God has come down to abide in the local real estate. And there's this flame barrier on top of the mountain. And Moses spends six days, and on the seventh day, he gets to go in through the flames to a place where he and God now will abide forever. And he stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. And it doesn't say in this text, but when Moses is talking about it in Deuteronomy, he says, I didn't eat any food and I didn't drink any water. That would normally kill us. But instead, his life is sustained in the presence of God. And the fire that seemed to consume the mountain does not consume Moses, much like the fire on the burning bush seemed to be burning, and yet the bush was not consumed. Moses is awesome, at least right now. This guy's amazing. But the people, man, they had a chance. And instead, they stood far off. Family of Grace, it has always been the case from the first pages of Genesis that the God that created heaven and earth desires to actually live with people as his covenant partners and to inhabit the space. This is, this is one of the main key arcs to the story of the entire scriptures. All the way in the book of Revelation, at the very end, John will cry out in elation, behold, the tabernacle of God is now dwelling with his people. It's been about us living together with God. And the people of Israel had a chance and they were afraid because darn it, it was scary. And I know myself enough that I don't, I, you know, I started reading these passages going, those dumb Israelites, what were they thinking? They had, they had the shot. And I've now come to realize that I'm, I'm probably just like them. And I praise God that now the offer to come experience God's presence doesn't come with loud thunder and lightning and an earthquake. That was so terrifying that even Moses is freaking out. Instead, it comes with the offer that because of a new mediator of a better covenant, a guy named Jesus, access to God's presence is available for free to all who would trust in Jesus and come close. Although it, it still does kind of look like coming to your death because it means giving up life according to our standards and saying, God, you're now the ultimate authority. It looks like repentance, a changing of ways, or as Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow after me. For anyone who would lose his life for my sake will save it. It looks like death, but it actually brings life. And I would just plead with you, I guess to those who are watching on the live stream, because I don't know for the people here, but if you don't understand that God wants to be with you and his presence to be with you, if you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's the offer. God will come and live with you and in you now if you have faith and trust in Jesus. You haven't come to a flaming mountain. You've come to one who has actually sacrificed himself for you. And the story just gets better and more interesting from here. But family of grace, I would say God has, you know, as Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door, I will come in and I will eat with them and they with me. God wants to be with his people. But in order to be the kind of people that represent God, we 
live differently. And so God, from the very beginning, has prioritized relationship over rules. Rules are easier. They don't take as much work. They're a lot more clear, and they have a tendency to have a bunch of other rule babies, and we just add one rule upon another. You know, the things as parents, you never thought you'd have to tell your kids, like, don't take your hot dog and try to stab somebody. <sighs> okay. <laughs> we have a new rule in the Hooten household. No stabbing people with hot dogs. All right. Um, because that's what happens. And yet, God prioritizes relationship even more. And so, I want to go back to the rules, because there's a lot of them. It goes from basically Exodus chapter 20, and the second half of Exodus is all about what does it mean to serve God? You've been freed from serving Pharaoh and Egypt so that you can serve Yahweh. Here's, here's what it looks like, and all Leviticus and half of Numbers are a bunch of rules. And I would propose that as we meditate upon these, like Jesus did, we will see that the rules reflect the rule giver, that we can actually peer past the rules into the relationship with God that we want to have. So just as Jesus meditating upon these scriptures, he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say that means don't even hate your brother in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say that means don't even lust for a woman in your heart. Like, go so far above and beyond the simple rules. Otherwise, I could write this off. I mean, after all, I don't know about you guys. I don't own any livestock. This would be really, really easy. But perhaps these are actually still written for our instructions so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped, ready to do every good work. So let's go into a couple of these covenant code laws. Like chapter 22, verse 22. Don't take advantage of the widow and the fatherless. Because if you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Turns out something close to the heart of God is he cares about the weak and the defenseless. He cares about people that he has made in his image, especially those who cannot protect themselves, widows and orphans. The least of these in the social strata of those days and, and frankly, even, even down to now. And God says, yeah, don't mess with them. Because if I, they cry out to me, I will pay attention and my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with a sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. I am not messing around. You take care of them. You value them. Because if not, I will treat you <laughs> the way that you're treating them. Be careful. I was reading this, uh, a different one, chapter 23, verse 4. And I went, oh God, I'm sorry, I am guilty. If you come across your enemy's ox or your donkey wandering off, be sure to return it, even though it's your enemy's. If you see a donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, don't leave it with them. Be sure you help them with it. And again, I could ignore this. I don't own a donkey, and most of my enemies don't either. But if I look past the rule to relationship, it means you help those who need help no matter who they are, or as Jesus said, love your enemies and maybe pray for those who persecute you. Perhaps they're under a burden that they can't escape from. And this week as I'm driving around Portland in the snow, passing people parked on the side of the road or a recent accident because I am too busy to try to get to where I want to be, I went, oh, shoot. Because I think what God would say is people matter. So take the time to help them with what's needed. So you see someone parked on the side of the road, I think a legitimate response would be pull over and say, do you need help? And then go on your way. Don't be too busy of them, busy for them, even if you don't like them. 
And so I would invite you guys to, again, to ponder these. We are not Israelites living a few thousand years ago. Thank God. Um, We've been invited to a new and better covenant. These rules are not legally binding, because uh, again, I don't own livestock, so I would be in the clear. But, but I think when we look at the rules, we will see the heart of God. We will learn about the rule giver, about who God is and the kind of people he wants us to be, the kind of people that work for justice, that take care of even our enemies, that keep our word even when it hurts, that, that practice faithfulness one to another, and that keep, above all, the Lord our God in front and center of our lives, and we live everything in light of him. And so again, God has invited us into relationship with him. I hope we would accept it and I hope we would be afraid enough of him that we would not sin, but not afraid of him in a way that would cause us to run away. And then I hope as we go through these that we will see in the rules that there's the relationship we can have with God above and beyond and that we, will, if the uh, psalmist, will come to see and to find that God, your instructions are better to us than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. May we not be afraid, but may we walk into the deep darkness and into the mystery where God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the stories of those who have gone before. God, thank you for the Israelites who showed us spectacularly what not to do over and over again. Lord, help us not to fall into the same trap they did. God, I thank you for Jesus I thank you so much for one who is even better than Moses, one who gave his life to atone for our sin, a mediator who understands that we are weak and quick to fail. Father, I pray that we would draw near to your presence, um, having been cleansed by something better than the blood of animals, but rather by the blood of your precious son, who has changed our hearts, who has opened a way for the presence of God to come and actually live in us, with us, And that when we gather together here, there is some sort of density to your presence that we cannot find anywhere else how good it is to gather with your people, O Lord. And so, Father, we want to experience your presence. We want to experience the blessings that come when you show up. Father, there are people in Kentucky who have driven thousands of miles because they hear that Jesus showed up on some college campus in a revival. Thank you for that. But Lord, your presence is everywhere. Your people gather together in the name of Jesus. And so, Father, would you make your presence known here that we might respond in faith and obedience and in holy fear and holy awe, that we might live as a distinct people, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that the nations might come to know that you are God and that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for these people. Bless them. Amen.